0: So, this evening, I like to talk about different things, but all connected, in a way, with the listening, and in that way, kind of looking at self, looking at others, and also little because somebody asked a question about altruism, which I will look at at the end. So, first is looking at uh, this sutta. It's in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, and it's called the Itta Sutta, which is benefit. And that's what it says, it's a very short sutta. (laughs) A monk endowed with five qualities practices both for his own benefit and for that of others, which five. There is a case where a monk is himself adept in virtue and encourages others to cultivate virtue. He himself cultivates concentration and encourages others to cultivate concentration. He himself is adept in discernment and encourages other to cultivate discernment. He himself is adept in release, and encourages other to be adept in release. He himself is adept in the knowledge and vision of release, and encourages other to also be adept in the knowledge and vision of release endowed with these five qualities among practices, both for his own benefit and for that of others. So in in a way, in this text, the Buddha is pointing out in a way what it is that we need to cultivate and to become proficient in because he thinks it will be of benefit to us. And at the same time, if this is of benefit to us, then he thinks it could be a good idea to encourage others to do the same because it could also be a benefit to them. So it's kind of like considering kind of what are the effects on me and what are the effects on others. And so what he suggests is ethics. He suggests concentration. He suggests discernment. He suggests release, de-grasping, and then that knowledge and vision that we talked before, of which will then lead to the release. So in a way, things that we are cultivating ourselves. So in that way, this will be beneficial to us. And then there is a question about how is it going to be beneficial for others? I mean, of course we could encourage others. And sometimes that happens at the end of retreat. You go back home and you tell all your friends to meditate <laughs> or to go on retreat and get your house. And generally it does not work. <laughs> so in a way, this is in a way a little of a challenge. How can we encourage others in virtue in concentration, in release, in discernment. And I think there is two aspects there. I think there is one aspect where the listening is very important. Because if we really listen with that meditative awareness, then actually sometime we know the right moment. We might say something, creatively we would encourage somebody cultivating ethics, concentration, discernment, release, knowledge and vision. So in a way, instead of thinking, I'm going to tell them like it is, I feel if we want to encourage others, actually we have to become more aware of others. We have to become more aware of how can I speak to others so that they can listen to me, and in a way what is the right moment that I might say something which could in a way kind of put a seed there that over time it could develop. I had an interesting experience when I, many years ago when I was still a nun. And I came back to France. And uh, in my family at the time it was a little difficult, so I kind of uh, was trying to help out a bit. And I felt the only thing I could help out was tell my nephew, who had great difficulty, to do breath meditation. I thought, oh, I'll tell him this for 10 minutes. You know, he has nothing else to do. He might as well listen to me. (laughs) You know, he was a little bored at home with grandma and me. And so I told him, you know, how to do watching the breath. And he did not seem convinced one way or another, but why not? He did listen. But what was interesting is that 20 years later, at a family gathering, he came to me and he said, oh, you know, a few years back, I had such problem that I did your breathing meditation, and it was so helpful. <laughs> so in a way, I think sometimes instead of encouraging people and wanting them to do it there and then, it's kind of more kind of helping, kind of planting a seed that then, who knows, when the right condition comes, then it might make a difference. But personally, I would say that the best encouragement we can have is actually just being it ourselves. I think this is, to me, a much better demonstration. You know, it's a much better encouragement. If we do the practice, and it makes a difference in our life. And if we behave more ethically, if we behave more, with more stability, if we to be, seem to be more peaceful, more creative, then people might think, hey, maybe there is something in this meditation. Instead of, in a way, telling them to do it. And personally, that's what I find, that in a way what is more important is that in a way the meditation, of course it benefit me, but you could nearly say it benefit others too in the fact that you become possibly less irritable, you become kinder, you become more peaceful. <coughs> and actually I think peacefulness, to have a, uh, this feeling of peacefulness nowadays can be such a gift to others instead of having this feeling of being busy, so many things to do, agitation. If you just bring this kind of kind peacefulness to somebody else, I think that can be actually the best thing you can do, to just be there with them in a peaceful way, so that you're not going to add to the agitation. You're not going to add to the confusion. Then there is another text which talks again. There is quite a few texts talking about benefit of self and others. And in this one, this is in the Sutta Nipata, and it's a Sedaka Sutta, which is about the acrobat. But I just want to read the end of it. This one is a little longer. And how does one, when watching after oneself, watch after others? Through pursuing the practice, through developing it, through devoting oneself to it, this is how one, when watching after oneself, watches after others. And how does one, when watching after others, watch after oneself? Through endurance, through harmlessness, and through a mind, of kindness and sympathy. This is a how one, when watching after others, watching after oneself. So the first one is interesting, the first one is about watching after oneself, watch after others. And basically, it just tells you to practice. That's all it does. But in a way, what I think he pointed out, is that nobody can do the practice for us. And this is, I think, in a way, one of the difficulty and the beauty of the practice, is that in a way nobody can do our meditation for us, which means that we are the one responsible for it. So nobody is going to take it away from it or anything of that nature. And at the same time, nobody can magically, kind of in a way, transmit the quietness, the clarity, the peace, the wisdom. We have to do the practice and this will happen to us, not to somebody else. But doing that actually will help us and help us because then it will help us to cultivate endurance, to cultivate harmlessness, to cultivate a mind of kindness and sympathy, And that generally is helpful to others. So that by watching after others is in a way doing us something so that then we have a different relationship to the others. And in a way one of the key things for the Buddha was that actually us, the individual, is not a danger to the other. So that in a way, the other person does not fear you, doesn't feel attacked, aggressed, or even before they meet you, they're not afraid of meeting you. And in a way in order for that to happen, in a way we need to cultivate patience. Because I think this is one of the things which really in a way make us aggressive, is you know, you are patient. Yes, yes, it's fine. 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 <laughs> and it's interesting how we seem to have only so much patience. It's kind of strange, like they seem to be this amount, and then if we go over that amount, poof, then you kind of we suddenly we transform into something very different. <laughs> and I would say actually doing a meditation retreat is a great exercise in patience. Because sometimes you feel sleepy, sometimes you have pain, you know, and so you have to have patience to sit here, to walk, to keep the silence. And that, I think, helps us actually to extend this, what I call, the patience gap, you know. We might start out with having just that much, And then it kind of, it seems to expand so that we seem to be able to have more endurance. And I think in a way, if we can have more endurance in some ways, more patience, I think we will be much less harmful in the world because we will be less, in a way, compulsive. Because I would say most of the time we don't want to be harmful. We don't want to speak harshly to somebody we don't want to, be, to behave nastily to somebody. But it's interesting when we are like that, what happens? And something like we, some restraints, some, something goes so, due to the impulse. And also this cultivating of a mind of kindness and sympathy. I mean, it doesn't mean that we become soapy. Ooh, oh, poor dear. But I think it means that we look to the other in a different way. To me, that's why I will introduce a loving-kindness meditation towards the end of the retreat, because it's not about producing a certain feeling, but it's about helping us to look at others and ourselves in a different way. And if we look at others in a different way, if we really see them as human beings, equal to ourselves, breathing like ourselves, suffering like ourselves, then we're more likely to have this kind movement, to have this sympathy, to have this kindness toward them. So that was a watching after the self and after others. And which brings me a little to the listening. To me, in a way, in order to cultivate this kindness, to cultivate this sympathy, to cultivate compassion, we need to be able to listen. I think this is really one of the key elements. And that's why I think this listening meditation is important. Because it, again, makes us go a little out of our self-centeredness and to try to meet the world, but in its own place, not where we want it to be or think it should be or how, etc., but just how does it appear? How does it present itself to us? Let it be a tree, a human being. And so in terms of uh, listening, of course, it's a human being. And in a way, when we talk to somebody when we try to communicate, one important element is listening. And the question is, how do we listen? And a lot of the time, I would say we listen in three ways, which I would say are not very helpful. And the first one is that we listen, but we wait for the person to stop so we can say something so much more interesting. (laughs) So then, actually, we do three things. One third, we wait for them to stop. One third, we try to remember that thing which is so much more interesting, which we want to say when finally they stop. (laughs) And one third, we listen. So, not just one third listening, not much. Then the next one is very interesting, is we look in the right direction, and the person talks to us, and we... Are somewhere else. We think of the shopping list, or we, I don't know, we're somewhere else. And then when the persons ask you, what do you think? You have no idea what they <laughs> say. Which is interesting because it really shows us mindfulness. You see, there is consciousness. I mean, you, have, you are conscious. You're not, you are conscious. You're sitting in the posture of being alive and conscious. You have ears which work. <laughs> and normally the sound should have reached you. I mean, they reach the ear, but they did not reach the mindfulness. They did not reach the awareness. It's so interesting, you know? So there there is no mindfulness. And the third one actually is when you grasp at the, what the person says. So you get totally overwhelmed. Oh, no, really? And it's kind of like a bit over the top. And generally it generally doesn't help the situation. You amplify what they're saying. Or you do the opposite. This is an interesting one. Somebody comes to you with a good news. This really good thing has happened to them. And within 10 minutes, you deflate them. <laughs> Have you thought of this? And what about that? And this could happen. And then... Sh- <laughs> it's gone. So we can do both ways. Amplify over the top or amplify and then they totally kind of you know becomes negative. And so to me, what this kind of what we can practice here is what I call meditative listening. So that we can in a way come to have communication and talk with somebody with such a different attitude, with the attitude of really being there to what the person is saying. That the person is not just there to listen to what we have to say, but that this is a dialogue. So that I'm going to really try to totally listen to what the person says, without preconception, prejudgment, just to listen. And what is interesting, if we do that, to really listen in the moment fully, at the end of it, we generally say things which are more wise and more compassionate. Because at that moment, we really creatively engage with the person and what they say. So it's not something made up in the past. It's really something which has to do with right now. All the conditions right now. And often it's so appropriate that you surprise yourself. You didn't know you could think like this. Or you didn't know you could say a thing like that but because in a way your creative potential can manifest itself because you are not in the way with your kind of idea from the past or certain kind of uh, coming from more from yourself, but instead being really there with the person in that moment. Then in terms of the listening, you have also the question that you come into contact with the words. One moment the word is not said, and next moment something is said. So you hear a word. And what do you do with that? Because I think at one level, the words are really empty. Because a word is just a little sonorous wave. It's just a wave, and he goes... <laughs> So if you want to to look at emptiness, this I think is a good description of emptiness, because it's kind of something which comes up, intangible, and it's gone. But what is interesting is that words, although they're really like that, so intangible, really very impermanent, just arising, passing away, we can grasp at them. And then we can really amplify them and we can really keep them. So that, you know, two years later, you'll still remember, they said this. You know, and then the word there is not empty. You know, it keeps getting you. You can always, You still scratch it. It's kind of stuck somewhere. Then you keep scratching it. And to me, this is in a way what, again, the listening meditation would be to, again, back to this creative engagement with what I listen to. Somebody says something, I listen carefully with attention to it. And then there is a space to ask, is this about me or is this about them? Because, you see, sometimes they say something which is about you, but sometimes it's totally about them. And then I think the question is, do I buy it or not, what they say? How can I creatively engage with what they say? Because sometimes people might criticize us. And sometimes they have good reason to criticize us. But then if we can't hear it, then it's not going to go anywhere. But sometimes people criticize you. And actually you've not done anything. And it's really more about certain idea or just totally nowhere. Nothing to do with you. And so in a way it's important if we have this meditative listening we will be less easily caught because often it's so fast. You hear the word and then "Ah!" it's kind of like you catch it and then you keep it. Instead of, ah, It's kind of like this word, appear. I can look at it, and then I can let it disappear. Or I can creatively engage with it and think, "Mm, yeah, maybe they have a point. Maybe I have to kind of, you know, find a way to work with this in a different way. So it won't be so difficult for other people. Then another thing with words is how we can so easily be influenced by them, how we can be colored by them, by what people say. And often we have this uh, impression that we are autonomous. You know, I know what's what. I am an individual. I am a solid individual. I do not sway in the wind. (laughs) Like the reed. I am like the oak, but actually, I think a lot of the time we are like the reed. You know, somebody says something, and we "Mm, yes, and you're fairly convinced by what they say. And then somebody else says the opposite, and you think "Mm, yes, you know. (laughs) And then it's kind of like we kind of we can be so easily influenced. And to me, that's why, in a way, when we do the meditation, it really helps us to be more stable so that when we hear words we have more space we have more creativity and again we don't buy it we don't kind of you know believe it immediately but we consider it we we think is it skillful and skillful harmful harmless so so that it's not st- straight away this identification and this you know yes this is true because it's interesting, the truth—the truth, the truth mm, according to who you listen to—the truth is so different. Many years ago, I had uh, friends who were separating, and they were really both really, really good friends of ours. And so, one would come to us and talk to us about it, and that was one story. Then the other one would come and talk to us, and after they were they left, we were kind of. Stephen and I, we looked at each other, and it was kind of like two completely different stories. Like they had nothing to do with each other. Like they were not living in the same place, in the same universe for two years. And it was so interesting, because each of them wanted us to totally believe their version. But their version was so far apart that you kind of like, We kind of looked. We kind of remained in the middle, because we it was so weird to have reality described in such totally different ways. And I think often that happens, because actually we perceive things differently. I think this is important to see that different people we perceive things differently. So then we present something. It's kind of like, you know, if you look at a rainbow and you only see the red. And then you say to somebody, oh, rainbow, it's red. And then somebody else said, rainbow, it's blue. And then somebody said, no, 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 rainbow, it's all these colors. You know? So again, you can, pres- I mean, the person who says it's red, it's not untrue. It's blue, it's not untrue. But you could say it's not the total truth of the rainbow. And so that's why I think when we listen, we really need to bring that creative wise listening. So then there can, again, be more possibility to creatively engage. Then we have some words. And I think mindfulness can really help us there, which are trigger. It words which will really trigger you. Mm-hmm. You just hear it and you go... Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. It's kind of like immediate. It kind of, again, bypasses any wisdom you might have developed. You know, my, uh, one of the words that gets me, uh, it's non-conceptual. You say non-conceptual and I go, <laughs> And recently a friend, last year we were teaching together and suddenly he said non-conceptual and I went, ah! <laughs> the poor thing, he didn't know what hit him. You know, I gave him a hard time for about an hour. But now I'm much better. I recently read an article about non conceptual, and I was able to finish it <laughs> peacefully. So, in a way, I mean, recently I saw this too with a, a friend, who, a great hero of ours, Buddhist hero of ours. And suddenly somebody said a word, put two words together. And that totally, I mean, he went, like within a millisecond, he went in a really funny state. And we all thought, what's going on here? Because he totally misunderstood. I mean, the words were in the same sentence, but the words were not qualifying each other. But because he, it was such trigger word for him, he saw them as going together. Nobody else saw it. I mean, there were 200 people in the room. Only he did it. <laughs> and that was so interesting to see that, that there was a word at the beginning here, then there were three sentences later there, and he put them together. And then he went onto a, a big thing. And so, in a, in a way, that's also what we do. You see, if you have to trigger word, we have to really see that that they really get us. So you might have one up here, one there, and then you make a story that the person never said. But then you will accuse them of having said it, and what can they say? They did say the two words, here and there, but not together. And so it's very, you see, so, so that you accuse them of having used the word when they did not mean it that way. And This is the thing and to see that the trigger word have so much power so that in a way we need to learn to see the power of the trigger so that we can learn to be with them a bit differently but also we have trigger words inside so we actually self trigger ourselves <laughs> you know and one of the tr- i mean and it's interesting the m- mindfulness can make us see over time, those trigger words. And one of them is unfair. You just need to have the word inside, unfair, and off you go. The whole body and mind goes zzzz again. And so each of us has to see. It doesn't mean that things should not be fair, but we have to see that generally this kind of trigger word, inner trigger word, unbalances and can away bypass the wisdom. That's a problem with that. It bypasses the wisdom. And then we can go to places of amplification. We might not be helpful to ourselves and to others. And then within the listening, of course, there is also one of the very important of the Eightfold Path, which is appropriate speech. And I won't speak about this tonight, But just in terms of the listening, that in a way when we speak, we speak to someone. And then the question is, how can they hear? So they might listen, but for them to listen in the best way, how can we speak in an appropriate manner? To me, this is what is interesting about communication is actually to bring the mindfulness to the speech so that we can learn what is the effect of what I say. And if I want to be heard, how can I speak in a way that people will more likely to hear me instead of straight away being upset or really not getting maybe what you are saying? So in a way what you need to do is again to be mindful of the effect my words have on others. When I say something, do people understand me? Can I have a dialogue? Can I have a conversation? Or do we get in kind of a weird impasse? Suddenly it doesn't work. Something does not fit. And that I think is a real training. It's a real training to see that, again, different people hear, listen in different ways. And so it really requires that we adapt, that we don't speak the same way to everybody, but that really we need to adapt. And for me, living for 10 years in Korea was an amazing training in that. Because in Korea, you don't speak the same language to everybody. You have to adapt the way you speak, but grammatically, to the people you speak to. And I was a lower person, so I was talked in a low language, which is very simplified. And I was talking to upper people in the hierarchy, and so I I had to use more complicated language. And this was very hard for me, a French person speaking, you know, I speak the same to everybody. No difference. We're all equal here. (laughs) And it was a great training to learn to adapt how I spoke. Because, you know, grammatically I had really to add things. So I would hear something and I could not repeat it. I had to change it each time. And so it was a kind of... We learned through the the gasp of other Korean people. (laughs) Like the master would say chalhe," and we would say "yeah, chalhe," and then the Korean would "oh." <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then we learn "kongbu chal hamnida. because he would ask us, "Are you practicing well?" And then we would say, "Yeah, yes, we practice well," but we had to say it in a kind of an upper form. And also the listening I think is important in terms of compassion because in a way in order to have compassion the first thing you need to do is to see the other. You need to see the pain of the other which means you need to be mindful, you need to be aware of the other. And to me that's one of the effects of this listening meditation and also the loving-kindness meditation is to not just focus in ourselves, but also open the focus to the world, open the focus to the other, to others' life. So that again helps us to go out a little of this self-centeredness where we're quite fixed within ourselves. And it's true that at the same time, compassion is an innate quality we have. Most people, when they see somebody suffer, will have a feeling of compassion. Generally, we respond to suffering with empathy, with compassion. But at the same time, I don't think that compassion should just be associated with the feeling of compassion. Because if we don't have the feeling does it mean we're not going to be compassionate? And I think one of the ideas about compassion is in a way that we are available to the suffering of others. So it's not just that we fear for the suffering of others, but we are available to it. And I think this is in a way a challenge. I think compassion is a challenge because the suffering of others, if we are available to it, we ma- will generally make us suffer a little. Not the same as they do, but it opens our heart to their suffering. And generally, it will make us feel sad. That I think is something we have to see with compassion. That generally, it will touch some sadness within ourselves. And so, in a way... I would say the listening, the meditation can help us not to be overwhelmed by the suffering. Because I think we can be overwhelmed in two ways by the suffering. We can be overwhelmed because that sadness, the sadness triggered by the suffering can trigger our own suffering by association. And then it really kind of amplifies the feeling of suffering. Or the suffering can be amplified and the sadness because at that moment we realize not only that person is suffering in that way, but there are so many other people in the world suffering in that way. And I think that's where we kind of, in compassion, there is a little that experience of the universality of suffering. It doesn't mean that everybody suffers all the time, but that people can suffer. We can suffer and others can suffer too. And that's why the equanimity is so important. That's why I will bring it on the last day, because in a way the equanimity helps us to balance the compassion, to help us to be with that feeling of sadness that is provoked by the suffering. And at the same time, the compassion is not just for others. There is, in a way, the Buddha, I think, is very clear in all the texts. He talks about, you know, watching for self and others, taking care of self and others. That, in a way, we need to be as compassionate to ourselves as to others. And I think that there we can see there is a spectrum to compassion. That on one level, there is what I call heroic compassion. And then you totally forget yourself for the other. On the other side you have just compassion for yourself because you are in such suffering you can't think of anything else. And then there is all the different compassion in between. And I think it's important to see it's not one is better than the other. But the heroic compassion has limits because there is only so much time, so much energy, so much money We can spend heroically. So, I think this is what is important to see that we have limits in terms of how much compassionate we can be. And also, so so that in a way to see that we go up and down through the spectrum. And at the same time, in terms of the listening, to see that in a way we don't need to just be available to the suffering nor have the feeling for the suffering but in a way to have the creative response because the compassion is not just a feeling of the availability but is the fact that we respond creatively to the suffering. So we have this creative, wise, active compassion. But in order for the compassion to be creative and wise, we need to be able to listen, to listen to the other What is it they need? What is it they want? And can I give it? Because this is a question. They might need something, they might want something, and you might not have it. I mean, that's what I experienced a lot when I was a nun in Korea. At the time, I was one of the rare foreign Western nuns. And so time to time, I was in the papers, and I was in the magazine. And I could guarantee that each time I was in a magazine or on TV, within a week I would get a letter from a young Korean person asking me for money. Because I was a Western person, I was associated with money, and so I must have money even though I was a nun. And I used to send them five pounds and say, that's all I have. You know, I really can't give you more. So in a way they wanted something, they needed something, they were poor, but I could not help them. So, you know, sometimes we can. We have the resource to help the person. And sometimes we don't have the resource to help the person. But then there is also to see how much are we uh, in the way in terms of the compassionate action. Because sometimes we're compassionate, but it's what I call theological compassion. You know, I know what is good for you. It rarely works. And that's why we need to listen. What is it they really need? Can I really be there where they are? Instead of me wanting them to be where I want them to be. I used to have a friend who used to come. And she had difficulty. And so me being, you know, go-getting good ideas. Every time I had good ideas... You know, to help her. But she never did anything about it. Until I realized the only thing she wanted from me was to love her, to see her, and to be there for her. And after that, it was so much easier. I didn't need to have ideas. I just <laughs> needed to be there. To love her, to see her, that was much easier. No problem. So now we have to see what is it we think that is needed and what is really needed. But I think to me that the listening can really help us there. And I think I'll finish here. And I'll just uh, read out the little note. I was wondering how how far you see Buddhist practice as being altruistic, or at least for the benefit of others, more than for the self. So I don't know if the talk answered the question, but I would say that the Buddhist practice would be equally of benefit for the self and for others. That's what would be my answer. So are there any questions or comments? Yes? Could you say a bit more about the availability of that, of that compassion? Because you said compassion shouldn't only be a feeling, but it should be available. But what kind of availability have? I meant in different way. The, the first, the basic one, I would see the fact that we are available to the suffering of others in the sense that we can bear it we can bear to be with the suffering. Because it's not easy to be with the suffering. It's not easy to be with somebody who is uh, mentally ill. It's not easy to be somebody who is going through really emotional turmoil. It's not easy to be with somebody who is in great physical pain or somebody who has great relationship difficulty. It's not easy. So in a way, I would say the first thing is that you are available to be with that pain. But then, of course, there is limits to that. And I think that's where the wisdom has to come in, that you, avail- I would say, you're available in principle. And then sometime, you might be more available than others. Like, if you're really tired, if you're very ill, then you might be less available. And then if you're really in a good space... You might be more available. I think it's kind of like, in principle, there is a availability. There is, in a way, what I would call the openness to see the other beyond oneself. To me, that's what is being available. is That you kind of, instead of just thinking just of oneself, we have in mind to be aware of others. But that is not like we force ourselves to be aware of others. To me, as uh, the gentleman was saying this afternoon, that for me the meditation over time is an opening of the heart so that we start to see as much ourselves as others, but we see them where they are at, not from our uh, self-centeredness, but we really see others in their humanity in their aloneness, in their pain, in their joy. So that, again, this availability means that you're open to see the humanity of the other. You're open to see the other. And then in terms of, you know, how much you're available, that really, again, depends on different factors, different conditions. Yes? I know very little about Buddhism, so I hope you don't mind a question from a beginner here. Sure, sure, yes. Sure. Um, you've spoken very beautifully about compassion. What does Buddhism have to say about compassion towards oneself? When well, one looks back at one's life, and perhaps many things one wishes one could undo, and things in one's own past that you find it hard to forgive. What's Buddhism's view on that, and how do you apply that compassion to yourself? You see, that's, in a way, one of the first things is, it seems to me that the meditative awareness, as we are talking yesterday, leads to this, what I would call acceptance. But it's not kind of like a resigned acceptance, a resentful acceptance, but it's kind of a really warm-hearted acceptance, and you start with oneself. Because you start to see that first you are not the hero you want to be, but you're not the villain you might think you are. You're actually an ordinary human being just like everybody else. And so accepting that, I think is kind of accepting with just an ordinary sentient being. I think the meditation can really help us there. And then one of the things in term from the Buddhist perspective, would be to accept we are here right now. We're not in the past. And we cannot change the past. That, I think, is something we can really learn. It doesn't mean we cannot learn from the past. We cannot make the same mistake in the future by learning from the past. But I think this is something to really learn that we can be humbled by our past in different ways and at the same time accept it's done. And one of the things sometimes Buddhism could help us to see is that we made the decision we made then because that was a condition we had then. We would not make them now, because the conditions are not now. But then that was the conditions that led to that. So, of course, you regret what you did, but very likely what you did then was because of the condition. And very likely what happened to you also was because of the condition. It doesn't mean that the conditions were good, the conditions were possibly bad, but it doesn't mean that you want to repeat this condition. You don't want to inflict what was inflicted upon you onto others. So I think there the, the, the teaching of conditionality, I think, is really important. So that things are less fixed. And one sees is more in kind of what I would call a wider perspective. So that the past, in a way, is the compost for the present. And in the present, you have the compassion to this person who, in good condition, can lean more toward the hero. I am here, great person. And in difficult condition, we lead more toward the irritable, impatient, problematic. So, again, the good and the bad are not fixed, they're very conditional. And I think in a way the meditation, what we're doing here, is to help us to move more toward creative engagement, toward wisdom, toward compassion, but not using them, because that sometimes is dangerous. You can then use, I've seen that in Buddhist community, mindfulness as a hammer to eat you with. You were not mindful. (laughs) You were not compassionate. It's very interesting how then you use it to attack others. And then they attack you back, you know. Well, you are not compassionate either, you know. (laughs) Then, you know, it's kind of like an an old couple bringing out stuff. But more, you see, it's kind of like the difference between inspiration and expectation. If we have as value, wisdom and compassion, then it inspires us to activate them, to practice them, to cultivate them. If we expect to be 100% wise and compassionate, we get into trouble. And so I think it's that, in that way, that in a way the Buddhist perspective could help in terms of that. And then when I'm going to bring loving kindness in two days, then it might become also clearer in terms of that. And I have to uh, stop here. Oh, well, final question at the back there. I can ask it another time. But some of the things that you were talking about in relation to listening, sort of rang bells, and I was thinking about habits, habits of listening that you can so easily fall into. And that that made me think about what we were talking about earlier this afternoon, about the sort of the dust of home life and, and um, something you talking about it really struck a chord with me when we come, we come to Devon and it's, 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 it's then even easier to see the dust, if you like, the dust of habits. And I think mean, this is perhaps a bit coming to you because it's only Tuesday, but I, I'm beginning to think, you know, how can, how, can, how can some of those habits, that dust, how can, how can we resist that? Anyway, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, no, this, you see, the thing with the habits and the patterns what we do here will really help with it. But what we have to be careful is that some habits are very strong. And so what we can do is diminish the intensity. And some habits, sometimes we can really see through them. And what is interesting is that they seem so strong. And then if you do something different, they just go. It's like their power goes overnight is that the light just goes off from them. So I think it depends the type of habit it is. and But it won't go by itself. So in terms of what we're doing here is kind of cultivating the muscle of mindfulness. So that when we go to daily life, what is one of the most important things is the intention and the aspiration. The intention to cultivate mindfulness, the aspiration to wisdom and compassion, but not as an expectation, I must be mindful 100%, etc., but just as an aspiration which gives you energy toward cultivating that. And with the listening, it's really something that you can work on to notice, "Hmm, somebody is talking to me, I am switching off. Then, okay, switch back oops, I am switching off, switch back. You know, kind of so working with that. And also realizing maybe I should not maybe see that person so often if I switch (laughs) off so much. Or maybe we should do something different together. So again, creative engagement. So now there is some walking meditation.